Luke. Luke. You remember Luke? Cool hand Luke. Open up the cool hand Luke. Luke chapter 19. We will start reading in verse 28. We will go to 44. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, and on which no one has ever set, yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anybody asks you, what are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawn near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Father, like always, Lord, let us humble ourselves before you to give us clarity into understanding your word, Father. Uh, breathe into the text for us, God. Use me somehow, some way to bring some kind of understanding and interpretation, Father God, to our ears today, Lord God, to strengthen us, encourage us, enlighten us, illuminate us, Father God, just to understand these things that have happened and how they re relate to us today, Father God. Bless this sermon, I ask, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Palm Sunday. Interesting, Pastor John preached a couple of weeks out of this text in John chapter 12, and a marvelous job, and it really just sets the tone for what I want to speak about today, even though some of these things are overlapping uh, let me assure you, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry today, it goes on every time the gospel is opened. Every time the text is opened. Any time any New Testament minister or pastor is faithful, I should say, to the word of God, we have certain dynamics that are taking place that we're going to see today. Historically, it's known as the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming in. They accept him as the king of Jerusalem, their Messiah, but it really is, it's a day of mixed emotions. It really is a day of mixed emotions. It's a day that offered so much for so many, but only a few really noticed it. And that's how Christianity is over 2,000 years. 
Every time the gospel invitation goes forth, there's a visitation of the Savior, and for many, it falls upon deafness. But there was a genuine praise to God. There's no question about it. There was genuine faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, a time of prophetic expectation, a time of prophetic fulfillment and anticipation. This was a time of great praise, a time of great hope. Uh, I don't know if we could really try to uh, capture the sentiments, the, the, the fervor, the zeal of what was taking place that day when Jesus, Jesus was coming up over the Mount of Olivet and looking down over Jerusalem and the crowd was coming behind them and the crowd was coming out from Jerusalem. I don't know if we could really capture what was taking place. I mean, to use a, a, a bad analogy, I mean, we could go to a football stadium and, and, and watch, uh, you know, the Super Bowl and the crowd go crazy, you know, but that, that, that's, that's an earthly analogy. This was the worship of God. As finicky as it was, it was still worship to God. It was religious fervor. The air was filled with it. But most unfortunately, though, it was a time of great hope and a time of great praise, a time of prophetic expectation and prophetic fulfillment. Unfortunately, it was also a time of genuine, genuine, genuine unbelief and total outright rejection. All going on simultaneously. And most of all, it was a day of missed opportunity when this whole nation did not see the day of its visitation. I'll speak about that when we get to that part in the text. But that's what holidays do. We come out today, nice Palm Sunday. We're a very simple church. We love the Lord. We love the, to be faithful to the, the truth. Uh, we love living for God every day of our life, 24-7. We don't worship in a temple or on a mountain. We worship in what? Spirit and truth every day. Every day is Christmas, it's Easter, it's resurrection. Every day we're living for the Lord. We're enjoying Christ. But holidays throughout 2,000 years, especially what's going on today, people are flocking to all sorts of churches all over the place. Some are faithful to the gospel. Many, many, many are not. Uh, it's a time of mixed emotions. It's a time of people going. And they don't realize that to them they're going to church. But God expects them to hear the message of salvation, respond to it, and know the things that make for peace. That same expectation that Jesus had on the nation of Israel 2,000 years ago, every time the gospel is preached, the same expectation is on everybody that hears. The same. That people respond with genuine faith and to understand the things that make for peace. And we know the things that make for peace. Faith in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection is the things that make for peace for us. Israel as a nation, the nation, for the last five centuries has been waiting for their Messiah. For the better part of five centuries, these silent years, John was speaking about it several weeks ago, they were waiting, they were in anticipation that the Messiah, the King of Israel, was about to come, the true King, who would usher in the kingdom of peace, and the kingdom of righteousness. The Jewish nation is a nation that was, was pregnant with prophetic expectation. They lived on prophecy. That's what 
that, that's what defined them. They were waiting for their Messiah. It defined who they were as a people, as a, as a human being, as an individual, as a nation. As a people, they, they were defined as people waiting for something. People could have been, they could have been walking around like this. When is he coming? When is he coming? You could have, that could have been an analogy of how they were. For five centuries they waited. They were waiting with the wrong way, wrong attitudes. They wanted a king that was going to come and break the oppression of Rome over their necks. And, and that's what they were expecting. Right, rightfully so, understand something. Jesus could have easily done that. If they would have received him as their savior and messiah, we might not be here right now. It might be a totally different earth. But of course, it didn't work out that way. God knows that there was no plan B. It was, it's always plan, only one plan, trust me. But the point being that God, Jesus could have easily took care of the Romans. Because if, if Israel would have embraced Christ as Messiah, chances are they wouldn't have to break Rome's neck. He would have saved Rome. Like he would have saved all the other nations of the earth. That's what he wants to do. People from what? Every nation, tongue, and tribe. And that's what he's going to do. But unfortunately, she didn't recognize these things that make for peace. She missed the opportunity. The story we're going to see today is one that has been happening to some degree ever since. At every Christian service has these dynamics. There are those in the crowd, just like there are today throughout Christendom, all over the world, the United States, whose hearts are genuinely overwhelmed by God's grace in Christ. They understand the gospel. They understand they're accepted by God the Father only through Christ the Son and what he did at the cross. They know that. They're overwhelmed by the grace of Christ. Others are fickle in faith. Their shouts of praise today. They're gone tomorrow. They're believing in Jesus today. You don't know about tomorrow. This crowd was crucifying them a week later. They were praising them one day, crucifying them a week later. There was others in the crowd that just followed the crowd. This is like religious mass hysteria. They just, they just got in. They're following the crowd. They're looking for a miracle. As our text says in verse 37, they saw the many miraculous signs that he had done. You always got curiosity seekers. Religious curiosity seekers. He's here. They were over there. No, he's over there. They were over there. He's not going to that church. So let me go over there. No, he's at that conference. Let me go over to that conference. No, he's down in Florida. Let me go to Florida. No, he's over there. And they're running around and... It's true. People are fickle. They come not in hope of personal salvation. They come for other reasons. Many people come to God for other reasons. Some just religious curiosity. They're blended in the crowd. No true commitment. No true faith. Observers looking for something. Then there's true converts who love Christ. But when they stand before the hostile crowds, they shrivel up. They run away like Peter did and the rest of the disciples did. They're weak in faith. Throughout 2,000 years, that's what, that's what we have. We have this. 
It's going on everywhere, all over the world. So many people don't understand the things that make for genuine peace. I ask you today, if you closed your eyes, if you could have everything you want, would you just want the shalom of God in your heart right now? If you had every prayer answered, but you were still a nervous wreck on the inside, would you want that? Or do you just want the peace of God in your life? Because that we can have. If we don't keep, if we keep our eyes focused, as Peter did when he was walking on the water, and he just kept his eyes focused on Christ, all of us, and we all need help, could truly walk to the other side of the Sea of Galilee with Christ. But we see the storms and the waves of life, and we're always crying out, Save me, Lord! Save me, Lord! We all do that. But understand, once we know the joy of our salvation, once we know the security, the eternal security we have in Christ, when we understand that the most important piece of the whole puzzle is that we're saved, and we don't lose sight of that, if we don't lose sight of that, that even Jesus had to rebuke his disciples, what did he tell them? He said, they said, Jesus, even the, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, don't rejoice at that. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Man. You know, we forget about those things. We forget about the fine print. You know, so we do know the things that make for peace. Let's hold on to that. That's what true converts do. We're always learning. To hold on to those things that generally make for peace. We have it. We have the peace of God. We have peace with God. That's why we have the peace of God. If we go into the context over here. Jesus has been for three and a half years. He's been preaching, performing miracles. Uh, the crowds are following him. They don't really understand who he is. Uh, but we can rest assured that there are many converts in the crowd. They're following for three years. The religious leaders have always been a hindrance to Christ's ministry. Always. They're either challenging him, they're questioning his authority, uh, they're, they're putting doubts in the minds of other people. That was the best they could do. We understand that they were jealous on the inside. The crowds were following Christ, and they try to exterminate him. They try to get rid of Lazarus. So the religious leaders have always been a hindrance for three years to Christ and his ministry. Now, according to the prophecy of Zechariah 9, he's coming into Jerusalem, riding humbly on a donkey's fold. That was his calling card. Uh, and we don't want to miss this. This prophecy is not there as some kind of religious curiosity. It is there for a reason. And, and this is a foretaste of the characteristics of the kingdom of God. Humility. We've got the humble king, he's coming in. It's a clear sign to them, make no mistake about it. He's saying to them all, this is the last prophecy. Get it now, there are no more. This is it. I'm coming in, riding, humble. Kings don't come in on donkeys, but yet here I am. According to Zechariah 9, I'm, I'm coming in. This is the calling card, you get no more. I will perform no more miracles except my resurrection. That is it. This is your time of visitation. Please don't miss it. You are people of the book. Too many people here, if I ask you to turn to Zechariah, you probably fumble around the Bible and wouldn't know where it was. And that's not a good thing. To the Jew... 
They understood what that meant. The word of God to the Jew was not like Zechariah who? They understood Zechariah 9. That's a prophecy of the coming king. They understood that there were people of prophecy. There were people of expectation. Anticipation. It was always there. It was always part of their religion. When he's coming in, riding on this colt of a donkey, it's his calling card. The time of visitation has come. Don't miss it. Please don't miss it. This is the last week with them, and they don't know it. But he truly has a destiny with the cross. They're welcoming him into the city, and they think they're receiving a humble king. A week later, they will drive him out of the city. Could you imagine a week later, the same crowd whose minds were filled with doubt by the religious leaders were driven out of the city where they cried out, crucify I mean, it's, it's, we'll speak about this next week, but it's hard to believe that this all transpired in a week. Please go home. Spend this week. Read Matthew and, and, and read Luke's account and from 19 on. And just read about that week, that passion week. You know, and, 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 and make it a devotion to the Lord this week and just see what he went through leading up to the cross. He's coming into Jerusalem at the Passover, the city that kills those sent to her to offer himself as the final Paschal Lamb. Behold, the end of all sacrifices is near and the beginning of a brand new work of God is going to take place. Jesus coming into Jerusalem. There's a crowd from Bethany following him. This was leading the crowd. Lazarus. Lazarus is leading the crowd. Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. What do you think? He was home saying, all right, Jesus, I'll meet you another time. <laughs> Lazarus, guess who else is there? Because we find out in, in Luke's gospel, the story before this is, guess what? Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. For today, salvation has come to your house. They were only a few miles apart. You had, you had Jericho, and then from Jericho, you went up with this, this, this deep ascent. And there was Bethany, Bethpage, a couple of towns, right before they get to the peak of this road. And the crowd is following Jesus. And now he's got him humbly on the colt. And he's coming over the, the peak, the pinnacle. He's, he's getting to the top. And when he's out there, that's when the shouts of praise come. And the people are coming out of Jerusalem now. And here they come. Maybe a mile and a half, maybe a two-mile ascent. up, at the, And they're all coming together. And they're shouting. And they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're not talking about a few hundred people. We're talking about tens of thousands of people all filled with religious expectation the king is coming and they have a right to believe that he's raising the dead he's healing the sick he's cleansing the leper he's feeding multitudes and multitudes of people the word about him is everywhere and all at one time by God's design, they're at the Passover 
as a pilgrimage. The calling card comes. Donkey comes out. The Messiah gets on top of it. He's going into the city. The crowd is electrified at the thought that Messiah is here. And the end of Rome is coming. It's incredible. They're singing. They're praising. They're joyful. They're happy. Animated. Fervent. You can just see the whole scene now if you try to picture it. How incredible it must have looked like. Every soul was filled with joy. Everyone, except for the Pharisees. You can see and sense the sheer joy and hope. Everybody talking about what he had done, all the miracles that had taken place under this man. He has to be the Messiah. He healed my friend. Lazarus was my friend. He, he healed him from the dead. He, he raised him. Has to be the son of David. Then what's wrong with this picture? It all looks good. Until we get to verse 41. And when Jesus drew near, he saw the city and what did he do? He wept over it. I guess Jesus has a different picture of what's taking place. Because nobody else is weeping. So many lessons. So many lessons we learn about life. That we learn about a life of faith from this text. Jesus sees the real heart of the matter, and that's why he's weeping. He's not caught up in empty praise, superficial honor. He's not caught up in religiosity. He's already rebuked the whole nation for worshiping me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Jesus is not taken, God's not taken back by empty praise. He sees right to the heart of the matter. He knows exactly what's going on. Exactly what's going to take place. So much unbelief. From the people, it was all good. From Jesus, it was all bad. That's what Jesus saw. What a picture of the Christ crying. And please understand, he's not crying that they're going to crucify him. He came to die for them. He's not crying that he's going to be crucified. That's why he's there for. It's because of rejection. Outright unbelief and rejection. We see the heart of God here. We see it according to Ezekiel, famous verse of scripture. Ezekiel says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways. Repent and turn from all your transgressions. Cast away all your transgressions which you have committed against me, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Israel, why will you die? For I have no pleasure in death of anyone. Turn and live. 
Turn and live. That's what Jesus is saying. I have no pleasure in death. I'll judge you. Your sins will judge you. You're condemned because of your sins. You're condemned because of your unbelief. But I have no delight in this. That's why Christ is weeping. His plan was always to die for his people anyway. That's what the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament was. It was only a, 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 a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, the once and for all sacrifice for Christ. He always planned, from the Garden of Eden on, he planned to come and suffer and die and be a substitution for the sins of the people. He's crying over their unbelief. He takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. Jesus weeps for unbelieving Israel. It's hard for us to even give an analogy. As John says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him not. He weeps. This is no passive tear. It means with loud groanings. With loud groanings. Painful groanings. He wept aloud. He cried aloud. He's on the donkey. He's on the fold of a donkey. He's on the colt of a donkey. And he has stopped. And he's looking over Jerusalem. And everybody's praising. And everybody's honoring. And everybody's happy. And there's Christ weeping and crying aloud with loud tears and loud groans. And saying, oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem. The city that stones those sent to her and kills the prophets. If you had only known the day, what makes for peace? If you only would have known the day of your visitation. He sees their rejection. He sees the faith. He sees unbelief. And he sees the product of unbelief. It's pain. It's pain. He predicts in a very graphic, if not gruesome, uh, picture of what's going to take place in Jerusalem, which happened 40 years later under Titus, AD 7, came down and just raised all of Jerusalem to the ground. Just Everybody got murdered. Horrible scene. But that's the picture of unbelief and rejection. It's painful. It's like watching people going down the wrong road in life and, and you're reaching out to them and they really think they know what they're doing and you're like, please, I beg you, don't go down that road of life. And you see it. It's predictable. It can only lead in one direction to pain and destruction. And that's what Christ is. Remember, they're his children. And this scenario has played out in every Christian service since then. Every Christian service should be a time of opportunity. A visitation from God. A visitation from God for salvation. 
the message of eternal hope, but along with certain judgment that will definitely come for unbelief. Every message should be implicit or explicit in every sermon. Salvation. As the gospel is explained through teaching and preaching, even the songs we sing have the element of salvation to it. Or the destruction that comes from unbelief. And there's a principle of decision and judgment in this whole text. Judgment is not a pleasant subject. Subject. But Jesus teaches it clearly. He holds nothing back. He knows they're rejecting him. He knows the day that visitation has come. And he's telling them in no uncertain terms, I'm taking the city away from you. I will judge the whole nation. And it finally comes. A growing Christian should be very sensitive to the lost and confused people around him. Because we know the things that make for peace. Romans 5.1 says it. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our theology and our lives should be really married to one another as ambassadors of Christ. I ask, the reality of certain judgment, the reality of certain destruction for the rejection of Christ, does it bring us to a real place of compassion for others? Are we so busy in life? Think about it. Are we so busy in our own life that you cannot see what Christ sees? I could never handle what Christ saw. And neither could you. But do we have a sense of urgency that we find in this text? Can we look at the religious crowd? Can we look at the great holiday? And the the sense, we're all together for Christmas. We're happy. We're a family. We're all together. It's Easter. Look at the formality. Well, half of the people are rejecting the Lord. That's what's taking place. The formality. Without the faith. So, formality without the faith. And like Christ, we should not soften the blow of this reality. We have to have a sense of urgency. It's a real. Just as the prediction of Jerusalem finally came, do you know not one prediction of destruction in the Bible in the Old Testament never didn't come to pass? Everyone came to pass. Everyone. This one came to pass. No one can say, ha ha ha, Isaiah said, and it didn't happen. No one can say, Jesus said, and it didn't happen. No one can say, I know Moses warned us, but it never happened. Even in 2 Peter, when they say, Peter, but when's the day of the Lord's return? And what does Peter say? To the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand days are like a year. Judgment is sure to come. The final judgment is sure to come. 
Verse 39 says this. And some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In the middle of the praise, in the middle of the worship, in the middle of the honor, even though some of it and most of it was fickle and filled with unbelief, there was a genuine praise taking place. And they want, the Pharisees want to rebuke them, to stop the praise. And you can rest assured there will always be people to try to stop the praise of God in their hearts. Loved ones could be the worst offenders are coming against our deep love for the Lord. Deep love and fervor you had for Christ. There's always somebody in our crowd, somebody around us that doesn't want to hear our genuine praise and love for Christ. It's everywhere. Instead of enjoying Christ for themselves, what the Pharisees should have done, they became a hindrance to others. And it still takes place today. Verse 40 says this last. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In God's eyes, it's not just injustice, but it's, it's sin not to believe in Christ. Not to praise Christ. Not to honor Christ. Not to give Christ everything. And all of us. It's injustice. In the Christian's heart. It's a learning curve. And the more we grow as a Christian. The more and more and more. The stronger, the stronger, the stronger. The higher, the higher, the higher. The clearer, the clearer, the clearer. Our praise to Christ should be. The praise of Christ should consume us. It should own us. It should direct us. It should encourage us. Let nothing silence our praise to Christ. Amen? Amen. Let nobody, let nothing ever get in the way of your personal praise of the Lord. Nothing. Cut it off. Don't let anything get in the way of your genuine worship and your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter who they are, no matter what they say, no matter how strong the threatenings are. Christ is worthy to be praised in the good times and the bad times, no matter what. It's interesting, this verse. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out in praise, is what he's saying, Jesus. This was fulfilled. Listen to Acts. Listen to this. This came to a place in a real sense when the gospel went to the Gentiles. And they flocked into the kingdom of God with great joy in their heart. Listen to this. Acts 13, starting verse 45 to 48. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God... Be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And as many were appointed to eternal life, they believed. 
there will always be unbelief around us. There will always be silence. When people should be praising God and they're silent, we can trust the scriptures. God has people other places. So much I pray for certain people. So much I pray for my loved ones. So much I pray for the ones closest to me. But I got to hold something else in my heart. They might not get saved. But that should not hinder me from going to the people who will believe. Who will believe. It's painful to watch our loved ones and our family and our friends, the ones we are so close to us, surely they're the ones God's going to touch. And then I remember, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But he wept. But there are people who will believe. They will believe. I'm going to continue to pray for my family. I'm going to continue to pray for my friends. I'm going to continue to pray for those co-workers. I'm going to put continue to pray that God uses me in the sphere of influence I have but understand something if they don't believe God will raise up stones from another crop of people to praise him let's be ready for that church let's not get blindsided to thinking it's the salvation has to come from these stones right here it might not we got to be prepared, prepared at all times to carry the message to everybody just like Paul and, Paul and Barnabas did they reviled them. They rejected them. They just went on to the Gentiles. And the hearts were wide open. God has his people everywhere. Let's just close our eyes for a moment. What's the day of our visitation look like? Have we ultimately accepted Christ? I'm sure most of us in this crowd have. But doesn't the Lord come in other visitations in our life? Calling us to walk stronger in holiness, in deeper conviction. What's the visitation right now that God is knocking on our heart? Maybe it's not the salvation one. Maybe I know you've, you've accepted that. But what is it? What is it that God keeps knocking on? What's the, what's, what's the visitation of sanctification? What is it we're holding back on? Let's just take a moment on that. I have a sense of what God is calling me to. You might find that hard to believe. But I think God's calling us all to certain things. What is it? I want you to etch that down. I want, you to, I want you to be able to tell somebody. Whether today or this week by phone call or coffee. To say, I know the Lord is speaking to me in this area. This is a new visitation in my heart. What is it? I know what I have to do. So mark that. And this week, reach out to a brother or sister and so I just want to tell you something that God, I know God wants to do this in my life. I know it. It's a day of my visitation. I know it. So Lord, we lift it up to you, God. God, let us never be silent. Let us always be filled with praise. Open up our mouth and fill it with good things, Father God. 
Continue to use us, Father God, with the unbelieving crowd, Father. Let us always keep the joy of our salvation, Father God. Let us never get waved out. Teach us how to weep, but be hopeful. Teach us how to weep and be joyful. Teach us how to weep and be peaceful. Just like your son was, for the joy set before him, he endured the pain of the cross. So God, we leave it up to you now. We bless you in Christ's name.